The Old Testament reading for today is Exodus 21.12 through 22.20, a large text. The New Testament reading is Matthew 5.38 through 42, a short text. Uh, We will go to the reading of God's Word in just a moment. Uh, For now I will exhort you, brothers and sisters, to come to the afternoon worship service. We keep it to about 45 minutes long. We sing a little. We hear catechetical preaching and we pray together. I am going to continue to exhort you to come, even if I come across as if I'm begging you to come. I have no shame. I'm going to beg you to come. Uh, We will not be any more heavy-handed than that, except for me to say, please come because it is such a a good thing. And bring the little ones too. Uh, These catechism questions and answers contain rich truths that need to be preached with regularity. And so, uh, you know, we we have the afternoon worship service um, only a short time after the morning worship service to make it very convenient, knowing that we have a lot of people who who commute from a long distance away. uh, We think it makes it most accessible. So I would exhort you to take just a little bit longer on the Lord's Day and come back for uh, the afternoon worship service as well. Let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word, Exodus 21.12 through 22.20. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. So, brothers and sisters, you can see we are continuing to consider the civil laws which God gave to Old Covenant Israel when he entered into covenant with them at Sinai. I continue now. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed." When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. 
When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches into thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to be kept safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he has put out his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to be kept safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, and the owner of the not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorcerer to live. Whoever, lives, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction." Let us now go to the New Testament reading, Matthew five thirty-eight through 42. Here we have the words of Christ. The context is the Sermon on the Mount. Christ had called His disciples to Himself, and He taught them many things, this being one of the things that He taught them. Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
It's now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Perhaps you will remember this from previous sermons. In Exodus 21.1 through 22.27, we find civil laws for the old covenant nation of Israel. God gave these civil or judicial laws to Israel through Moses as he entered into a covenant with them at Sinai. These civil laws were added to the moral law. And they were needed because God did not merely redeem individual persons from Egypt, but a people whom He had promised to make into a great nation. And nations need civil or judicial laws if they are to function. And here in Exodus 21, 1 through 22, 27, we find the first collection of civil laws which God gave to Israel. These are case laws, remember, and case laws provide examples of what is to be done in certain cases. Wise judges were then expected to rule on particular cases with wisdom and in light of the cases provided. And it is true that more civil laws for Israel are found in the rest of the writings of Moses, but these are the very first. The civil laws that come later will build upon and clarify these. Perhaps you will also remember that these case laws are presented to us in a highly structured way. The case laws are divided into ten parts, matching the ten commandments of the moral law. And these ten parts are presented to us in a chiastic structure, meaning that the first part mirrors the last, the second part mirrors the second to last, and so on. And this literary structure, which I have presented to you in previous sermons, brings both order to this portion of Scripture. It also brings clarity in that it emphasizes certain things. The structure makes clear the emphasis. Last Sunday, I preached a sermon on the first and last portion of this section, both of which came, uh, contained laws pertaining to the just treatment of the weak and vulnerable within society. Slaves or indentured servants were to be treated justly, and so too were aliens, orphans, widows, and the poor. So yes, it is strange that I'm preaching sermons on texts that are separated a bit, but there is a reason for this. Last Sunday, I preached on the first and last portion of this chiastic structure, and they correspond to one another. They deal with the same thing. Justice is to be shown to the poor, to the weak, to the vulnerable within society. Now today, we will consider the whole middle portion of this chiasm. Here, in sections 2 through 9, or B through B prime, it becomes, it becomes very clear that Moses presented the most serious or weighty matters in the first and last place. The order is this. First, Moses deals with crimes deserving the death penalty. Next, he addresses bodily assaults that require restitution. After that, he describes what should be done in the case where a person is killed by an animal belonging to another. Finally, in section 5 or E, we find laws pertaining to the loss of property due to an accident. And then in section 6, which corresponds to section 5, it's there we find the middle of the chiastic structure. We find laws pertaining to the loss of property due to theft. And then everything descends back down the backside of the chiasm again the back side corresponding to the front side, making its way back to crimes deserving of the death penalty. That's what we're dealing with here in the, in the book of Exodus. I, I hope that you're able to follow along with me as I remind you uh, of these truths. Uh, this whole passage 
contains two parts and they mirror one another. So again, I say to you in the previous sermon, I dealt with the first and last portion. Here we're dealing with the entire middle portion of this uh, chiasm. We have our work uh, cut out uh, for us. Uh, And as you know, in the previous two sermons, I made much of the movement in this chiastic structure from the more serious or weighty matters to the less serious matters, and then back down again. I made much of this movement in in an attempt to convince you that this collection of civil laws stresses the importance of treating the weak and vulnerable in society in a way that is just. That's the very first thing, and the last thing that Moses deals with in this section. Those who are weak and vulnerable in society must not be exploited, but they must be treated in a way... That is just. It's true for those who are servants. It's true for the poor, for the fatherless, for the, for the widow. It's true for the alien or for the, the foreigner that was in their midst. All are to be treated with honor and with justice. Again, I say today we will be considering everything in between. Now, I've divided this sermon into two parts. First, we will ask the question, what did these civil laws require of old covenant Israel. You will notice the past tense here. What did these civil laws require of old covenant Israel? These laws were for them, remember. And so here I will simply walk you through this portion and briefly explain these laws to you, especially the ones that might be confusing to us. And after that, we will briefly ask the question, what do these laws require for us? What do they require for us today? These laws were for Israel and are in some senses not for us, but in other senses they are for us. There is certainly something for us to learn and application to be made. So let us begin with the question, what did these laws require of old covenant Israel? What did they mean for them? I wish to explain these laws to you briefly. First, Notice that some crimes in Old Covenant Israel were to be punished with death. Some crimes in Old Covenant Israel were to receive the death penalty or capital punishment. Uh, The death penalty was not to be administered by individual persons, acting as individual persons, mind you, but through the established judicial system. Old Covenant Israel would have to establish a judicial system Uh, through which these civil laws would be enforced. And as you probably know, the system that Israel had would change with the passing of time. I think this is important for us to notice, by the way. Uh, First, Moses would judge them alone. We'll come to that in the Exodus narrative. After that, the elders of the tribes of Israel would help with judgments. Later, judges would rule over Israel, and that would be the system for quite a long time. And finally, Israel would be given a king. Finally, Israel would be given a king. I find it interesting that Israel did not have one particular form of government given to them, nor did she have one particular system of justice given to them. These, as I have said, would change with the passing of time and with the development of the nation. But Israel was given particular civil laws, and and they were to see to it that these laws were enforced justly. This required the development of judicial systems so that justice would be upheld, as I have said before, not by individuals acting as individuals, but by society in a collective way with elders, judges, and eventually kings in the lead. You know, I find this interesting, and I think it is an important observation because, um, you know, I, I think we tend to make maybe too much of the various forms of government uh, that exist 
around the world today and throughout the history of the world. And I do agree that there are some forms of government that are exceedingly prone to, 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 to uh, injustice and to oppression. I, I, I'm not denying that. But here is something I want you to recognize. Israel was not given one particular form of government. That would evolve with the passing of time. I, I think what we must see is that um, the point is this. Justice is to be upheld in nations. How exactly that works, you see, is going to differ from place to place and from time to time. The issue is justice. The issue is to avoid all corruption and oppression within our systems. Even our system is very much prone to corruption. Uh, we... we we take pride in our system, and maybe rightly so. I think it's right that we do, but we should not be so naive to think that our system is immune from, from great corruption and from evil. Back now to the sermon and away from that tangent. Let me refer, return now rather to the first observation about the civil law code of Israel. Some crimes were punishable by death. And we are to consider these now. They're found in 21, 12 through 17... And then again, near to the end of this section, in 22, 18 through 20. In these portions, uh, crimes deserving capital punishment are addressed. In 21, 12 through 14, we read, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from the altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now look to 22.18. 22.18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So there are seven things mentioned here that were punishable by death in Old Covenant Israel. The list is not exhaustive, mind you. The Law of Moses mentions other crimes deserving of capital punishment later. These are case laws, remember. These are examples of crimes deserving the death penalty in Old Covenant Israel. One, those who murder willfully and with premeditation were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. You, you should notice uh, the little remark in verse 13 about the, what the Lord would do for Israel once they took possession of the land. He would establish cities of refuge for Israel where those who killed accidentally could run to to be protected from those who wished to avenge the life of their friend or family member. And in these cities of refuge, the accused were to receive a fair trial. If it was proven that the person killed Willfully, intentionally, with premeditation, they were to be put to death. But if it was by accident that they killed another, then their life was to be spared. So we see that those who kill willfully and with premeditation were to be put to death. Two, those who strike their father or mother were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. The word translated here as strike is a strong word. It means to beat or to wound. I think the meaning is this. Those who assault their father and mother were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. I don't think this is describing you know, a sad situation where a father and a son might have an altercation. You know, and they have a dust up and the son strikes the father because the father struck him. I don't think that's what's envisioned here. But rather a son who is so rebellious and so morally perverse or a daughter, 
that they assault their own parents. I think that's what is envisioned. Three, man-stealers or kidnappers, we might say. And those in possession of those who had been stolen were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. So man-stealing was a a capital crime uh, in the Old Covenant. Four, those who cursed their parents were to be put to death. Some have argued that a better translation would be treat with contempt or to treat disgracefully. So whoever treats his father or mother with contempt or disgrace shall be put to death. In 22.18, we learn that sorcerers or those who practiced uh, magic, um, dark sorcery, these were to be put to death. 19.22.19, those who committed bestiality were to be put to death. And lastly, in 22.20, we learn that idolaters, those who practiced idolatry within Israel, made sacrifices to, to other gods, were to be put to death. Now, I have warned you in previous sermons that these civil laws were in some ways unique to Old Covenant Israel. And they are not binding on all nations or on any other nation besides them. Um, I think this is important for us to remember and I, and I think that you can see why it is important for us to remember now. <laughs> do, do you get it? Uh, we, you kind of get a sense that man, the, the, some of these laws and their corresponding punishments, um, they, they seem to have been for, for Israel uniquely and, and maybe they are not for us. They're not meant to be picked up by us and implemented in our nation t- today. You, I think you probably have that Intuition, that sense, and, and I think it is right. Um, again, I say we may learn about matters of morality and justice from these laws, but they are not meant to be taken up by any other nation enforced and enforced without alteration. In the Noahic covenant, in the Noahic covenant, are you able to, to jump around with me and to track with me here? We're talking right now about the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant that was made with Israel in the days of Moses after God redeemed them from Egypt. And They were at Sinai. We're we're, we're considering the terms of the Mosaic Covenant right now, the the making of the Mosaic Covenant. But I'm saying, think back to the Noahic Covenant in the days after the flood when God made a covenant with all of creation uh, in in the days of Noah and and through him. In the Noahic Covenant, it was established that murderers were to receive the death penalty. Murderers were to receive the death penalty. And here I am saying that that was true not for Israel only, Israel did not exist at the time, but for all nations, because we have to pay attention to who this covenant was being made with. It was being made with all of creation and and all of the peoples of earth. And that did also establish this standard for justice. I'm referring to, to what was said in the days of Noah. Blood for blood is what was said in the days of Noah. Those who shed the blood of man by man shall their blood be shed. That was a step. Pay attention to when. That was established when. Not in, in, in Moses' day. Not at Sinai. But in the days after the flood as a new humanity emerged from Noah and from his descendants. And in that covenantal uh, relationship that God established there. Not with one particular nation but with all of creation and all the nations of the earth. That That standard of life for life did also establish the principle of eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It established the principle of retributive justice. And I am saying to you that this standard is for all nations. But the standard that God gave to Old Covenant Israel was in some ways unique to them. Here in these civil laws which God gave to Israel you will notice that it is not only premeditated murder that is punishable by death, but other heinous violations of God's moral law. 
Israel was set apart as a holy people, remember. This does not mean that they were pure. They were certainly not pure. We'll learn all about that very quickly in the Exodus story and later in the Old Testament. But rather, when we say that Israel was a holy nation, we mean that they were unique. That they were unique. For God dwelt in the midst of them. His kingdom was prefigured amongst them. And He was working His redemptive purposes through them in a special way to bring the Messiah into the world. For this reason, we say that they were holy. And for this reason, heinous violations of the moral law were also punishable by death. Those who practiced sorcery and sacrifice to other gods undermined the whole of the first table of the moral law in an extreme and blatant way. Could you see how this would undermine the fabric of Israel's unique society then? Can you see it? Israel is set apart as a holy nation. God's temple is going to be in the midst of them. Yahweh is going to be their God in a, in a very... I mean, Yahweh is God of, of all people. He is the one true God. There is no other. But in a special way, Yahweh was the God of Israel. By virtue of that covenantal relationship that God entered into with them. So, so sorcery and idolatry is punishable by death under the Old Covenant because it was a heinous violation of, 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 of the first and second commandments. Indeed, of the whole of the first table of law. And it would undermine the, the, the fabric of Israel's unique society. Uh, that sort of sin was to be purged from Old Covenant Israel. The idolater, the one who is out sacrificing to other gods publicly, that was to receive the death penalty uh, there in Old Covenant Israel. Um, I might ask you at this point, what would happen if we were to try to take up this principle in the United States of America today and to enforce this law with the power of our government what would happen? You would have no one left to evangelize, brothers and sisters. I mean, that might be stated extremely, because here I think we are talking about people who are out sacrificing to other gods at altars. So that might be stated a little bit extremely. But here I'm simply drawing your attention to the obvious thing. The United States of America is a common nation. It is a common nation, like all of the other nations that have ever existed on planet Earth. Israel was a unique nation, a holy nation. The temple of God dwelt in the midst of them. They had a priesthood. They had, the kings were called to be priests. I, on and on I could go. There is a uniqueness there that we must always keep in mind. Here again, I am saying to you that some of these extreme violations of God's moral law were punishable by death in Old Covenant Israel. And, and it, it may be, and I think it is highly likely that we should not assume that that should be the case in our country uh, today, premeditated murder was a violation of the sixth commandment that was punishable by death, and this is not surprising given that this is God's standard for all societies, as established and communicated clearly under the Noahic covenant. To assault one's parents or to curse them or to treat them with contempt, notice, is an extreme violation of the fifth commandment, which is you shall honor your father and your mother. You shall honor your father and your mother. In Old Covenant Israel, um, those who disregarded this moral law in such an extreme way so as to assault their own parents or to be purged from that society. Man-stealing, that is kidnapping and forced slavery, is an extreme violation of the Eighth Commandment which was punishable by death. The Eighth Commandment is you shall not steal. Well, what is the most extreme form of stealing except this, that you would steal away another human being? 
another person. We may also say that it's a violation of the fifth commandment because honor is not being shown to the weak and vulnerable within society. Um, by the way, if I could make a clarifying remark here, not in my manuscript, uh, I think some of these laws would be wrong for us to take up and to implement in our nation today. I'm not saying that all of them would. Kidnapping today, man-stealing today, human trafficking today is a very vile thing. It's a very evil thing. Uh, and, and perhaps that should be punished with uh, extreme measures even uh, to this present day. I'm simply saying we must think carefully about these things as we handle the Old Covenant civil laws given to, to Israel. Bestiality is an extreme violation of the Seventh Commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. Uh, this commandment to not commit adultery re- requires sexual purity according to God's design. And bestiality, along with homosexuality, are perversions of God's design and were punishable by death in Old Covenant Israel. These are extreme perversions of the command to not commit adultery. These are extreme perversions of God's design for sex and for uh, the procreation that is to take place uh, within uh, the marriage bond. So you can see that it was not only the murderer who was to be put to death in Israel, but also those who were immoral in an extremely perverse way. Why, again, I say, because Israel was set apart as a holy nation. There in that nation, there in that nation, sin was magnified. There in that nation, the promises of God were preserved and the glory of God was manifest. Through them, the Messiah would be brought into the world. Not every sin was a crime in Old Covenant Israel, I've already said this, but heinous sins were considered crimes and some were even punishable by death. It would be a mistake to pick up this law code as if it were for our common nation, but it would also be a great mistake to ignore this law and to fail to learn from it. Do you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying not to err in one way or the other. I'm trying to provide guardrails for you so that we do not misuse this law. At the same time, this law should be precious to us. The whole of the law of Moses should be precious to us. We ought to pick it up, study it, and learn from it. And thanks be to God, I have a congregation before me who is patient Uh, to do this and willing to work hard at at the study of Holy Scripture. So then, some things were punishable by death. Secondly, some bodily assaults were not punishable by death, but did require that restitution be paid. These laws requiring restitution, or maybe we would say compensation, in the case of bodily assault, are found in Exodus 21.18-27, and 22, 16 through 17. Those are the, the, the mirroring sections of this, uh, this passage. Look at 21, 18 with me. And maybe I should exhort you to not nod off at this point. I, I, think, I think this is very important and I think it will be of interest to you. 21, 18. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed... Then, if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him or shall see to it that he is thoroughly healed. So here we have a situation where one man injures another. One man injures another man so that the man may must lay in his bed for a period of time. In other words, he, he does not die but he is injured so badly that he cannot work. These are case laws, remember. In a situation like this, what are we to do? 
What, what is just? Uh, what is right? Uh, what are we to do here? In that situation, the one who injured him was to pay restitution. He was to compensate for the loss of the time. He was also to compensate for the person's medical expenses. He was to, to pay him for his loss of time. He could not work. And he was to see to it that the man was thoroughly healed. He was to pay for whatever medical expenses uh, he incurred, incurred. In verse, verses 20 through 22, the assault of a slave by a master is considered. So this is under the same heading, but it's a, it's a more specific case. I, I should remind you, I dealt with the whole issue of slavery or servitude in the previous sermon. If you did not listen to that, you should go listen to it so that you're not confused here. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave or servant, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. This means that if a master struck their slave and killed them, they were to be punished according to the same laws which governed free men. A master was not free to to kill his servant or his slave. Uh, The master was to be put to death if he did this with premeditation. If it was not with premeditation, the city of refuge was to be fled to and there was to be a fair trial. All of that applies here as it pertains to the master-servant relationship. Notice it made no difference if the servant was male or female. Same protection was offered to to the females here. Uh, Here we see yet again that slaves or servants were to be honored as human beings within Israel. Masters were not free to do to their slaves as they pleased. These slaves had rights, in other words. And if, again, you missed the sermon from last Sunday, please listen to it. Now, verse 21 probably sounded strange to you upon first reading. It sounded strange to me upon first reading. I thought, okay, what, what does that mean exactly? I think it will become clear upon closer examination. Hear it now. But if the slave survives a day or two... He is not to be avenged, for the slave is his master's money. I actually prefer the NIV's translation of this verse. I think it more clearly communicates the meaning. The NIV renders the Hebrew in this way, But he, the master, is not to be punished if the slave gets up a day or two, uh, since after a day or two, since the slave is his property. Though it does not say this, the ESV, which I originally read, gives the impression that the slave survives a day or two after being struck, and then after that dies. It it, it it leaves that possibility open. Again, it's not what it says, but it leaves that possibility open. And then we read that the master is not to be avenged, and... If that is what the text means, then I say, that seems unjust. That seems unjust. You know, if, if the master strikes the slave and he dies right away, the master is to be punished. But if he survives a day or two and then dies, he's not to be punished. It, it gives that impression, and I say, that sounds unjust. But again, I think the, ES, the, the NIV uh, more accu- accurately uh, communicates the concept here. I, I think that the meaning is this, and it seems clear from the context, uh, that if the slave is struck by the master and is bedridden for a day or two, and then gets up and survives, then the master is not to be punished. Then the master is not to be punished. Why? Because the slave or the servant is his property or is his money. Now, now, this is the question that is being addressed. Must a master pay restitution to a servant whom he strikes and injures to the point of him being unable to work? Answer, no. 
No restitution is required, as would be the case among free men, as stated in verse 19, because the slave or servant is the master's money or property. This is bound to be misunderstood as well, isn't it? Some would object saying, see, slaves were dehumanized and reduced to property in Israel. And to the objector, I say, you have not been paying attention to the other laws regulating slavery. Um, In fact, slaves were given honor and were to be treated with justice in Old Covenant Israel. The meaning of this verse is really quite simple and reasonable. If a free man strikes a free man so that he is injured and cannot work, the one who struck him must compensate for his loss. But if a master strikes a servant whom he is contracted with to work for him for a set period of time and has paid the man up front or will pay him in uh, disbursements or at the end of the contract, then it is not the injured servant who suffers a monetary loss, but the master. Can you see how this is? If a master is so foolish, uh, so, so, so foolish, so as to strike his own servant to where the servant is bedridden, who loses out here, monetarily speaking? It is the master who loses out. He has already paid the wage of this servant up front, or there is a contract requiring disbursement of of payment, or it will be paid at the end. It is the master who loses out um, because the master has entered into this contract with the servant already. Uh, That is what is being dealt with here, and I deal with it in detail so as to try to lay aside any of these possible objections that might be raised concerning the justness of the Old Covenant uh, civil, civil laws. By the way, here we go again. By the way, perhaps you are noticing the lack of any mention of prison as a penalty for crimes committed within Old Covenant Israel. Anyone notice that? Prison plays a rather large part in our judicial system But as you look at the Old Covenant civil laws, you will notice that prison is not really prescribed as a penalty for crimes committed. We've heard about the penalty of death, haven't we? We've heard about restitution, the need to make restitution when one person does harm to another physically. And later we'll see when one person does harm to another Financially, as it pertains to their property, restitution is, is to be made. But nothing is said of imprisonment. No mention is made of that as a punishment for crime. Now, I am not saying that prison has no place in a judicial system. Indeed, we must ask the question, well, what is to be done with those who owe restitution but refuse to pay it? We have to ask that question. And it is interesting that Christ spoke of prison in one of his parables as the place where someone is sent until he should pay the debt. That is Matthew 18.30. Now, that parable is about a different matter, so we cannot press it too far. But, but it's just interesting. In Christ's mind, prison was the place where people were to be sent until they should pay some debt, meaning until they should pay restitution owed to another So I am not saying that prison has no place, but it is curious that nothing is said about it in Israel's judicial laws. Why is this? Why is this? Well, here is the principle at the core of Israel's judicial system. Here it is. 
It's in verse 23. But if there is harm, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This is the principle at the, at the heart of Israel's judicial or civil laws. It's the same principle that was at the heart of the, the, the judicial approach um, in, in, the, um, in the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 9-6, Noahic Covenant. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It's the, it's the principle or the standard of retributive justice that all of the nations of earth are called to uphold. Premeditated murder is punishable by death, and where an injury is done to another person's to another person or, or, prop, or to their property, restitution is to be made. And please understand this. It is the standard of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, etc., which makes it possible to calculate what the proper amount of restitution is in the case, of, in the case where one man does injury to another. Are you following me? This has to be the standard. Eye for eye, hand for hand, foot for foot. This must be the standard because... It's from here that we begin and are able to calculate what the proper price of restitution will be. Imagine a situation where someone is careless and they cause another human being to lose their hand. What does the law say? What is the standard for justice? It is this. You you have cost that man his hand. Now you owe that man your hand. Hand for hand. Or, and we will see this in Old Covenant Israel's civil laws, or this person can redeem his hand. This person can make restitution in another way by providing financial compensation for the loss of that other person's hand. But, but what is the question? How much is a hand worth? How much is a hand worth? You know? We have to calculate inflation after all, don't we? <laughs> I, seriously, though, how much is a hand worth? How do, you, how do you put a value on hand? I'll tell you how. The man without a hand who lost his hand because another person was negligent says to that man, you owe me your hand. The law says, you owe me your hand, and I will take it. Or you can, you can provide me monetary compensation. Let the bargaining begin. Let the negotiation begin. How much is your hand worth to you? How much will you pay to keep it? And I bet you'll get pretty close to the value of a hand in that way by negotiating in in this way for, for that man's hand that he still has. How much is your hand worth to you to keep it? How much are you willing to pay to keep your hand? Well, that is how much my hand was worth to me, but you took it through negligence, you see. So this is the principle at the very core of all civil laws of all nations and it is the principle at the core of the civil laws which governed Israel. Theirs were unique because they were a holy nation. We've addressed that. But still, as it pertains to retributive justice, here it is. Life for life, hand for hand, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. And from here, restitution, proper restitution uh, can be made. I ask the question, why no mention of prison? And I think the answer is this. In most cases, justice is really not served in prison unless it is for the purpose of paying 
restitution. Have you ever heard it said of a person who goes to prison, they are paying their debt to society? Have you ever heard that? They're in prison, and they're paying their debt to society. Sometimes we say things and do not even think about what they mean. What debt to society? What debt to society is owed by a criminal? I mean, I can see it if a man is a menace to society, perhaps if he drinks and drives and does some other thing to put society at risk, but does not really harm anyone. Perhaps there is a kind of debt to pay to society there. But in these cases where a man steals from another man or assaults another man or does some other injury to them, the debt is not owed to society. Who is the debt owed to? It's owed to the victim. And time in jail does not pay that debt. Some form of monetary compensation must be determined so that restitution can be paid. The principle at the core of our judicial system should be this, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And stated even more specifically, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. You will notice that this protection was applied to all human beings in Old Covenant Israel, even to those who were still in their mother's womb. Verse 22 when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, there, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there is harm, this is referring to harm to the unborn child who comes out prematurely because of some altercation where a woman is hit. But if there is harm... Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That phrase there, it it applies to all, generally, yes. But in the context, it is a reference to the harm done to an unborn child while in the mother's womb who comes out prematurely. Just wrap your heads around that for a moment, my brothers and sisters, and consider its implications for the question of whether or not abortion is just. Even the unborn child was afforded these protections in the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel. In verse 26, we find that these protections were also applied to slaves. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Earlier, the law addressed the question, What should the master owe if he strikes his slave so that he cannot work for a day or two, but then arises and is a whole person again? Well, no monetary compensation is needed because the master has already lost out on his investment. But here the question is a bit different. What should the penalty be if the master strikes his slave and does permanent harm to him or to her? Answer, the slave shall be set free. That is to say, released from his or her contract early as payment for the injury. And surely this would deter masters from treating their servants in a harsh way. A master would be a fool to strike his own servant in such a way where the servant is bedridden. A master would also be a fool to strike his own servant so as to do bodily harm, permanent bodily harm to the servant. And the law puts pressure on masters in this way, saying if you, if you strike your servant and injure their eye so that they lose their sight, that servant is free now. 
It doesn't matter what you paid them. It doesn't matter how long you've contracted with them for, that they will be your, your servant. They are to be set free because of your harsh treatment. I, I feel as if I need to say this again. These are civil laws, not moral laws. Is it immoral for a master to strike his servant? I say yes, it is immoral. We're dealing with questions of criminality and with questions of proper and just restitution. Do not forget that. I'm quickly running out of time, so I'll briefly draw your attention to the backside of this chiasm and the corresponding laws pertaining to bodily assault. Look at 22.16-17. through 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, in the ancient world, a bride price would be paid by the family of the groom to the family of the bride before marriage, and this would function as a kind of insurance. If the man was unfaithful, the woman would have something to fall back on. She would not be trapped in the marriage or left destitute if she left that marriage. And in the case where a man seduced a virgin, not betrothed, this is not a woman engaged to another man or or married to another man. If this man seduced the virgin into premarital sex, the couple was either to enter into marriage with the bride price being paid, or the bride price was to be paid without marriage, this was up to the father, whether or not he would give his daughter to this man who seduced his daughter. This was not rape, mind you, but it was still considered to be a kind of assault upon the woman by the man. You will notice the responsibility that is placed upon men, in particular within Old Covenant Israel. Uh, Both were engaged in this activity, maybe even and certainly willfully. It is not rape, I've already said this. Uh, But restitution is to be made. Restitution is to be paid uh, by the offending party, by the man, uh, to the family of the the daughter, uh, to the family of the woman. Uh, Because it was a kind of of assault upon the woman, a a taking advantage of her, uh, and a a defaming of her. I I fight for words here, uh, but you, you understand the point. Thirdly, as we draw near now to the center of this chiasm, we find case laws addressing situations involving animals, in 21, 28 through 32, situations where a person is injured or killed by an animal are addressed. And in 22, 10 through 15, situations involving the death or loss of an animal are addressed. And I will not spend much time on this section. I'll say only a little about the first section wherein we find a case where a person is injured or killed by an animal belonging to another. Notice, if the animal has not been accustomed to attack or gore in the past, the owner was to be considered innocent and the animal was to be killed. So the owner did not know that the animal was aggressive, and so it is not the owner's fault that the animal has acted in an aggressive way and was not restrained. But if the animal was accustomed to gore, meaning they were accustomed to attack, they had this propensity towards aggression, and the owner failed to fence it in or to keep it in, the owner was to be considered guilty and liable to death, though in this case... Unlike in the case of premeditated murder, the owner was to be given the opportunity or could be given the opportunity to pay a ransom for his life. Uh, He could be given that opportunity. This has application for us, by the way, brothers and sisters. We cannot be negligent. I think that is the meaning. We cannot be negligent with our person nor with our property. We have to be responsible to to live in a careful way so, so as to not endanger our own life nor to endanger the lives of those around us, this could also have spiritual application. This could also have spiritual application, that we have a responsibility to care for those under our care spiritually, so that if we see there is some danger to them spiritually, 
we have an obligation to, to guard against the danger. Uh, we should not let aggressive animals roam free, nor should we leave pits uncovered for the sake of our neighbor. That has also spiritual application. Fourthly now, in the center portion of this chiasm, we find case laws pertaining to the loss of personal property. Exodus 21, 33-36 deals with the loss of property due to accident or negligence. And Exodus 22, 1-9 addresses the loss of property due to theft. In brief, restitution was to be made. In the case of the loss of property due to an accident, the restitution was to be equal to the value. In the case of negligence, the restitution was to be a bit greater than the value. And in the case of theft, the amount of restitution was in some instances to be four or five times greater than the value. If a thief stole an ox and the ox was lost, five oxen were to be uh, repaid for the loss of the one. Here in this section, we also find laws about the right to protect one's property. 22.2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. This describes a situation where perhaps at night, not necessarily, but imagine this. A thief breaks into the house. If that person, in our context, is shot and killed, the one who was protecting his property and his person, there is to be no blood guilt for that. This is an act of self-defense. But, notice, seeking vengeance was strictly forbidden. Uh, That is what verse 3 of chapter 22 speaks to. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. The meaning is this. You are not free to, uh, having discovered that you've had something taken from you, in the morning rise up and pursue the thief and to kill them. That's murder. That's not just. So, there would be blood guilt in those cases. The thief was not to pay for his theft with his life in these instances. Rather, he was to make appropriate restitution according to the other laws. And then we read, if he has nothing, he was to be sold for his theft. He may become an indentured servant, perhaps, in order to earn the money needed to pay back what he owed to the one that he has wronged. So I've provided you with an overview of these civil case laws and have asked what they required of Old Covenant Israel. I've done this rapidly. More could be said. Now I wish to ask very briefly, what do they require of us? I'll answer in two parts, first politically, then personally. Politically, I must warn you not to forget about the uniqueness of Old Covenant Israel and to remember what our confession rightly says. These judicial laws expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So these judicial laws have expired. Old Covenant Israel, the Old Covenant and and the nation of Israel, it's done. Why? The Christ has come through them. That was their purpose, to bring the Christ into the world. So these civil laws are not for us in an explicit and exact way. Secondly, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to have a strong and deeply biblical political theology. It's important for us to think clearly about matters of politics, about matters of civil law, about matters of justice. I think this is going to become more important in the future. We must understand God's purpose for common civil governments like ours. God is sovereign over those who govern, and He has given them certain responsibilities and powers. But those responsibilities and powers are limited. And to help you understand God's design for civil governments, I would refer you back to that Sunday school class we engaged with some time ago called Politics After Christendom. 
It's a big subject that we cannot handle now. I would encourage you to go through that study if you missed it. Uh, Three, I would exhort you to love our nation and to seek its well-being while also desiring to see other nations flourish too. Here I am making this very general observation that God has brought order to the world. God preserves the world and preserves justice within the world through nations, through nations, through the establishment of judicial systems in these nations. If you love people and you wish to see people prosper, I'm speaking in an earthly way here, if you wish to see justice upheld, then you should also have a, have a love for the idea of nations. We should love nations. If we, if we love people, we will. We will seek the prosperity of our own nation, and we will also seek the prosperity of other nations too. You understand that to have national pride does not mean that you seek to see other nations diminished. We should seek, we should long to see justice upheld in all the nations of the earth, in ours and in other nations too. Nationalism, please hear me, is a good thing. There are very, very bad forms of nationalism though. National pride that is centered upon ethnicity... National pride that is centered upon military might or economic prosperity is to be rejected, I believe. Um, these, These are not the kinds of things that our national pride should be rooted in. But national pride that is centered upon morality, freedom, and justice for all is to be celebrated. We should long to see our nation flourish in this way. Not only that we would flourish financially, not only that we would flourish as it pertains to our military might and our dominance over others. We should long to see our nation succeed and to flourish as it pertains to matters of morality, justice, and freedom for all. Four, if we agree that justice will only be upheld within nations, then we ought to also appreciate citizenship. It is not difficult to see that without citizenship, chaos will ensue within nations. These are general observations as I step step back from the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel that I'm here making. Five, I say, let us pray for and work towards, so long as we are able, the implementation of just laws and a just judicial system. I'm afraid we have some very big problems in our nation and in our state, brothers and sisters. We have some very big problems. Um, just yesterday I was speaking with my fellow elders about this, how aggravating it is that people are allowed to steal from businesses in this community with no consequences whatsoever. No restitution is made by the thief to the one that he has stolen from at all. This is unjust. And we could probably point to dozens upon dozens of other problems. To state the matter succinctly, leaving the issues of corruption aside, it seems to me that our government, state and federal, is big where it should be small and small where it should be big. Stated differently, our government does seem to be negligent in the few things that God has called it to do but very ambitious to do many things that it has no business doing. 
I'm not sure what the solution is, but I know we must pray, brothers and sisters. We must be transformed by the renewal of our minds also. We must be responsible where we are able to act. And we can deal with what is right in front of us. We can deal with what is right in front, right in front of us. We can treat others justly in our personal lives. All the while, we must remember that the Lord is sovereign. Now, personally and morally, I have a few suggestions for application. One, would you see what your sins deserve? Not every sin was a crime in Old Covenant Israel, but the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel did magnify sin by showing what violations of God's moral law deserve. Are you tracking with me here? Look at how severe the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel were in some instances. Well, uh, this is what your sins deserve and more so. Every violation of God's moral law deserves death. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And certainly God will judge in this way at the end of time if we are not in Christ Jesus. So see what your sins deserve. Two, consider the death that Christ died. Consider the death that Christ died. Christ died the death of a sinner, though he was without sin. And why did he do this except for others? He died as a substitute. He made propitiation for sins by his his death. Three, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to long for the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. Long for that day. Long for the return of Christ and the new heavens and new earth. There are going to be many things that make heaven heaven. Uh, The supreme thing is that God Himself will be there in our midst and His glory will fill all. We will find satisfaction in Him. But brothers and sisters, have you ever stopped to think of how good it will be to dwell in a place where there is no unrighteousness, where there is no injustice, where there is no corruption? We can look upon our world and say, oh, how, how, how sad it is to see it all around us. But there will be a day when everything is just right. Everything is just as it should be. And that will be when the new heavens and earth come. Long for the new heavens and earth. For until then, be willing to suffer in this world. Turn the other cheek. Go the way of the cross. You know, at the beginning of this sermon, and it is a long sermon, I read from Matthew 5.38, which is a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This portion of Scripture is often misunderstood because people fail to notice Who it is that Jesus was preaching to. Who was Jesus preaching to when he said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Who was Jesus speaking to when he said these words? Was he speaking to the world, to those who did not believe in him? Answer, no. Connected to this, I ask you, was Jesus speaking to civil governments when he said the words, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. Was he giving a new mandate to civil governments in this moment as he spoke on the, civil, the Sermon on the Mount? Was he saying, yes, it was this way in the days of Noah, civil magistrates were to uphold justice in this way, in a retributive way, and it was this way in Israel, but no longer. Was he speaking to civil governments? Answer, no. There are some who believe this, by the way. There are some who will argue for a very soft civil government, a very soft judicial system, because after all, Jesus has come, and Jesus said, turn the other cheek. If we take the turn the other cheek principle and say to those who govern, turn the other cheek, we will devolve into chaos like that. No justice will be upheld in the world. There are people who believe this. Actually, the view is quite prominent. 
Who was Jesus speaking to? He was speaking to his disciples. He was speaking to the apostles, who would be the foundation of the church. Christ is here giving instructions to his church as they will now live under the new covenant. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of Israel and under the old covenant which governed it, the citizens of that kingdom, along with their magistrates, were to be concerned with matters of retributive justice, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. But in the kingdom of Christ, And under the new covenant which governs this kingdom, there is no such union of church and state. The church, collectively, is to concern herself with spiritual things under this new covenant. She is to advance a spiritual kingdom and to fight a spiritual war, while matters of retributive justice are to be left to the civil magistrate. And this is why Christ spoke to his disciples, saying, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you. He's speaking to his disciples. He is giving a law to his church to follow. Christians may serve in the civil realm. This is true. But the church as an institution is not to concern herself with these matters. Instead, the church is called to further the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, to do church discipline, to... To do this, to make disciples of all nations until the Lord returns. And this will also require us to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. This sermon has had a lot of, has had a lot of political implications for us. And, and as Christians, we may engage politically, yes, and seek the implementation of just laws in our society. But it is the business of the civil government to do this. Caesar has the sword. yes. Caesar has the sword. The church has a different sword. Yes? And under the new covenant, and in the kingdom of Christ, which the new covenant governs, governs, the sword of retributive justice and the sword of the Spirit are relegated to two distinct realms, to two distinct entities. And it will be this way until Christ returns to make all things new. Okay? That is the meaning of what Christ said there in the Sermon on the Mount. While I am happy to have you think about matters of social justice, brothers and sisters, and while I am happy to encourage you to pray and to work for justice in our society, I must also ask you, are you willing to suffer in this world for the sake of Christ as we keep our eyes fixed upon the mission of the church, which is this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded, And we are to do this with the confidence that He is with us always to the end of the age. So we have responsibilities as citizens in this world. And we have responsibilities as citizens in the kingdom of Christ. We have a dual citizenship, brothers and sisters. Sometimes it can be difficult to have a dual citizenship. But we must navigate all of this. We must, yes, promote justice in this land while also being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, to, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give the cloak also. Uh, brothers and sisters, we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ while we are citizens here, and we must seek the establishment of His everlasting kingdom. Let us pow, bow together for a word of prayer, and then we will go directly to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Mike, we will go directly to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Father in heaven, 
we thank you for your most holy word. We thank you even for these civil laws which seem very foreign to us. Sometimes they're difficult to understand. May we handle them correctly. May we learn from them, O Lord. We do pray for this nation. We pray for this world that justice would be upheld in it. We trust that you are able, O God, to preserve all things until Christ returns. We pray that you would do this as it pertains to the nations of this earth. We pray that nations would flourish in this way, that they would be upright and just. Bless us with peace, though we deserve it not, O Lord. Bless us with peace in this land. Until Christ returns, O Lord, make us faithful. Make us faithful as your servants to work for the establishment, not of these temporary kingdoms which will pass away, but for the building up of a kingdom that will never end, with Christ as Lord and King. It's in His name that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.